Amen. Thanks, Ben. If you uh, want to pull out your sermon insert and open that up, you'll see Psalm 53. It's good to be back with you guys after being away for a couple weeks for rest, relaxation. I feel like I'm refreshed. Many of you have asked how my time away was. Um, I've often said it was fun to just drive to church with my family, which I never do. So that was a fun time, uh, worshiping with our sister churches and other like-minded churches around the city. Um, so I've come back full and excited to, to bring the scriptures this morning from Psalm 53. Just so everyone's aware, we are in the Psalms for two more weeks, this Sunday and next. Then we have a handful of weeks where we're going to jump back into our Old Testament survey and finish what is the Old Testament story. We're going to be in the prophets and looking at uh, what they had to offer us as they were in exile and out of exile. And then beginning in November, we're going to be starting a long study in the book of Revelation. So that will be fun. All right. Um, as is our custom, let's just jump right in. Let's stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 53. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I, uh, this is my birthday month. I turn uh, 32 this month, and if you are about that age or slightly younger, you may have had an experience that I had growing up. Um, it's, if you're older than maybe, say, about 27, you might have had an experience like this. You'll have to think back with me to the first generation of iPod. Everybody know what an iPod is? Um, it was the precursor to our iPhones. But the iPod only existed for music, for audio, for MP3s. Um, if you picture it with me, it was, it was much more, uh, not as sleek, more like a brick. The top half had your old school screen, so not touch screen, old school screen. And the bottom half of the iPod had a circular wheel that had the audio controls on it. And then you could move up and down by like spinning your thumb. It was like something you do, just wee a good time, but um, no touchscreen yet, no phone capabilities yet, no texting yet, no apps, no games yet. Just a nice kind of cool glorified uh, MP3 Walkman. You might have been the real cool ones. You got the colored ones. Um, they were a good time. Now, most commonly to get music onto these iPods, though, you uh, often had a CD, right? Most of us had CDs, if you remember what those were back uh, in ancient days. A CD had music on it, or uh, maybe audiobooks. If you were an audiobook person, you would notice that there, that, talk about a brick, there's like five or five to ten discs that made up an audiobook. And you would put the CDs in your computer, 
uh, take the, the files from the CD into iTunes, then from iTunes put it on your device, and then you'd listen to your music or audiobooks, or I even put sermons on there. And um, the audiobooks, as well as sermons, were interesting because each chapter was like a title, it was like a track, it was like a song. Or a sermon, a 45-minute sermon that I might have on a CD when I put onto my iPod, it would consist of like eight or nine tracks. They were five minutes each, and you just listen top to bottom if you wanted to listen to the sermon. I did that often. Um, You might know what I'm talking about, or you might not. You'll just have to use your imagination. But one time during a workout, I'm listening to my iPod with wired headphones. Yes, it was connected to the device um, back in the day. And um, I was listening to the sermon. I, I don't remember who it was. I don't remember what it was about, but it was a sermon. But it was lacking the preacher's normal, precise, and kind of logical flow. I was like, this is just not, not doing it for me. He started out with a great introduction, but then very quickly went to the conclusion. Um, between sets, one time I was picking up, like, oh, he's talking about point three, but I don't remember any points one or two. But then what really clued me into something being off was when he said the exact same thing that I had just heard 10 minutes before. I was like, verbatim, I have heard this before. Where have I heard this? This is, this is the same thing. Well, I pulled out my iPod and noticed that I'm listening to this sermon consisting of about 10 tracks on shuffle. It's jumping around, making no sense, because these ten tracks that make up one sermon are on shuffle mode, jumping around and jumping all over. But it was that thought. This is what this is what clued me in. Like something's different here was when I said, I've heard this before. Hasn't he said this already? Maybe during my reading of the 53rd Psalm, you were having an epiphany that I had while working out listening to my iPod. I've heard this before. Hasn't Taylor even said this before? You would be right if you had that inclination. You might not have, but you would be right because Psalm 53 is Psalm 14. They are repeated. The same psalm, two small changes which we'll get into. Basically, Psalm 14 uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, in your English Bibles. Psalm 53 uses the more general, generic name of God, God. Then there's a small uh, change at the end of verse 5, which we'll get there uh, in terms of what might be going on. But very small changes. They are the same psalms repeated. I also had the privilege of preaching Psalm 14 in our second summer through the psalms. In 2018, you probably all remember that psalm. You were changed by it, and you have been dwelling on Psalm 14 ever since then. But I hope this will be fresh and new. Um, And if that wasn't your experience, that's okay. I don't even remember preaching Psalm 14. Um, But I did, I guess. But hopefully this is fresh and new for us this morning. But you've definitely heard this again, not only because Psalm 14 and 53 are the same, but because the Apostle Paul, in his argument to the Romans, quotes both of these psalms at length in Romans chapter 3. In his long argument on how Jew and Gentile alike, covenant people of God, non-covenant people, everybody on the face of the earth is born in sin, what we might call totally depraved, utterly wicked, and incapable of changing their sinfulness without the Holy Spirit. He quotes these verses right before the, the triumphant concluding statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Then he turns to then expound the beauty of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, how we can be forgiven in Jesus. So I should make something abundantly clear. When God says something, we should know it. When God says something twice, it deserves careful attention, maybe even memory. But friends, when God says something three or more times, it seems to me that we would be served by giving it our utmost attention and consideration. And so this is a statement, an argument made at least three times in the scriptures. What does God have for us in these psalms? If I had to boil it down to one argument and give you one little bite-sized thing to take with you, it's in the top right of your, your insert there. My main point is that God's people ought to resist the temptation of living as if there is no God by humbly submitting to his anointed one. Most of that sentence is just directly picked up and restated from Psalm 53. God's people ought to resist the temptation of living as if there is no God. That is Psalm 53, that's Psalm 14. I've added by humbly submitting to his anointed one, which is implicit in the text, verse 6, made explicit by the Apostle Paul taking it and applying it to the gospel in the book of Romans. And if you're wondering, by humbly submitting to his anointed one, anointed one is simply the word for Messiah, for Christ. It is what the Old Testament kings were called the Christ, but they are looking ahead to a greater king to come, the Messiah, the prophet who is like Moses but greater. Psalm 53 is expecting the one who we now look back in time and see was Jesus. So we resist temptation of living as if there's no God by humbly submitting ourselves to God's anointed one, God's king, Jesus Christ. Now to look at this psalm and to to warn ourselves against our ever-present temptation to live as if there is no God. I have three points for us. I've broken the psalm into three pieces. The vast majority of our time will be in the first point, which the vast majority of that will be in the first sentence. So, first thing I want us to see is that those who are opposed to God are often opposed to his people. This is verses one through four. It certainly starts with a bang. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Then we have results of this worldview. They are sinful, no one's good, not even one, nothing good, sinners. But then in verse 4, it then switches to then talking about how those same people who are throwing off God are often resistant to God's people as well. Those opposed to God often oppose God's people. Those who reject God often want to reject the people of God. That's point one. Let's look at that first sentence, though. The fool. The fool. There are three main words for fool in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. None of those words speak mainly, primarily, of intellectual inability. The fool, when we're talking about him or her, is not someone primarily incapable of reason or incapable of thinking. The fool in Scripture does not have an intellect problem, but a moral problem. The fool is the one who is oriented away from God. The foolish one is the one who, who's not interested in a godly worldview, a biblical worldview, and morally wants to go his or her own way, even though God says this is the way. It's a moral problem. 
And this specific word for fool connotes even more the idea this person is all of that, but more. They're rejecting clear wisdom that they know right before them. And they're saying, uh-uh. It's the, the word, the f- word for fool here is where we get the name Nabal. In 1 Samuel 25, the idiot who refuses to help King David and his mighty men, uh, who is saved purely because his wife Abigail says, no, King David and your mighty men, don't kill him. He's a fool. Don't kill him. So David spares him. Nabal still dies a horrible death, and David marries Abigail. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 25, but it's the same word. Fool. Not submitting to God's anointed one. Living as if there is no God. Look at that next phrase. And the fool is saying is in his heart. The heart, biblically speaking, we often say is the, the seat of our affections. It is who we are in one real sense. What drives us, what animates us. It's our inner person, but all of us too. It is what makes us us. The fool is saying in his heart, his deepest parts, his affections, there is no God. Now, There's something interesting with that phrase, there is no God. You need to know the there and the is, is not there. If you're using an older translation like King James, New King James, and I think even the NAS, will sometimes italicize words in English that aren't there in the original Hebrew or Greek. They're just added for our English language. If you're using one of those, you would see the there and the is is in italics because... It literally says, the fool says in his heart, no God. No God. This is getting at what we often call atheism. I'll use this word throughout this morning, and so I want us to be on the same page with it. (coughs) Excuse me. Atheism, the alpha privative there at the front being a negative. No, ah, no theism from the Greek word theos, God. No God. It's the belief that there is no God. We came from nowhere. There is no purpose to our existence. When our heart stops, it's just darkness, and we get buried, and that's the the end of us. Atheism. There is no God. Now, still, there's a little bit of a difference. There's a nuance here um, because the atheism of our day, when I said that word, you were probably thinking of a college professor for some reason or a college student who had a biology class, and everything's undone now all of a sudden. Um, some sort of intellectual or philosophical atheism, if you will. That's not what's going on here. Because that sort of intellectual, philosophical atheism would have been unheard of in this day. It would have been extremely rare, if not impossible. Everyone believed in God or gods or something. It was just which ones and how involved are they? What does your worldview look like? So I think what's going on here in Psalm 14 and 53, the fool... Again, the morally off person who wants to live his or her life the way he wants to or she wants to is saying in his heart, there is no God. This is what we might call a moral atheism. They want to live their life the way they want to, and so they conveniently throw off God. This person's not saying there is no God, there is no invisible realm whatsoever. The fool who is saying in his heart there is no God is denying that the God who is there is actually near and involved. He's not here. He actually is not paying attention to me. And I certainly will not give account to him when I see him. 
That's the atheism that's going on here. Someone oriented away from the Lord, who's morally off, choosing to live and to sin as if God doesn't see us. He's not here. He's not near. He's not present. It's what you might call the the he-won't-see principle. If you have children, you know the problem it is when you have multiple kids in a corner whispering. Usually they're like, let's do this or that. Let's grab one more cookie. You do that. They won't see. They won't see. Mom won't know. Dad won't know. That's what's going on here. Like, the fool is saying in his heart that God's not near. He's not paying attention to us. I can live this way, sleep with this person or that person, do my life this way and do that because he won't see. I'm not going to have to answer for this. He's not, he's not there. That's foolish. That's the fool. That's the atheism here. Now, what's going on um, with this text? Before we are tempted to, to lift our gaze to the outside world and point fingers at those out there, I think this text is going to be far more like a mirror than ammunition to shoot at others. I think this text actually has to do with you and me. Because I think whether we like it or not, you're the fool. And so am I. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is an atheism problem. Why? Because you're an atheist. And so am I. It's not the intellectual or philosophical one. You're here. You're probably ascribing to a biblical worldview. God exists, yes. You might even be in a community group, spend many of your days reading the scriptures for yourselves. Those are all vitally important and good rhythms to implement, but I think it's possible, if not common, for us to be all of those things, faithful church members. We profess with our lips God exists, yes to Jesus. We're in a community group. We read our Bibles and yet live most of our waking hours as if God doesn't exist. And that he's not there. And he's not near. He's not with you. I know this because I feel it myself. We get up, stumble to the shower, maybe grab your coffee if you're a, a coffee in the shower guy or gal. You get right to it, though. You, you got your shower, coffee, you're doing it. And then you get about your day. I've got to do this. I've got this meeting. This person's got to be there. And that kid here and this hair meeting at this time. Then I've got a lunch meeting here. Boom, we're going about our day. Next thing you know, you're brushing your teeth and putting your head on your pillow at night, and you haven't thought about Jesus once. Our Christian version of that same scenario simply might place a quiet time or a devotional reading in the morning, at which time you say, amen, close this, and you don't think about Christ the rest of your day. You go about your day functioning in your own strength, because I've got this. Went to college. Strong. I'm independent. Woo! Go about your day operating in your natural giftings. You make every decision based upon your own intellect. You don't bring the Lord into anything you're doing or deciding. You haven't included him in your life and most detrimental. You haven't enjoyed him. We're atheists. It's just a practical atheism. A functional atheism. Friends of New City, I hope this is abundantly clear. I don't want you to be an atheist. I don't want to be one. There's a better way. 
This is what Psalm 53 is pressing against. Psalm 14 is pressing against. God is offering us a life of partnership with Him. A life of loving union and communion. A day that starts with Jesus. A day that has Jesus throughout the day. uh, Jesus at the end of the day. Jesus in the big things. Jesus in the mundane. Jesus in the ups. Jesus in the downs. Jesus when we're on mountaintops. Jesus when we're in seasons of desolation and despair. Doing life with our friend, with our Savior, with our Lord, with our King, Jesus. Any other way is the fool. And it's very easy to be a fool. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I asked my wife, I asked my own heart, I asked some of my, my brothers in Christ dearest to me who know me more than I know myself, where are areas that you see me functioning as an atheist? If you have someone close to you, if you're married to that person, maybe include a discussion like that this afternoon. I got 10 of them. Maybe I'm really uh, similar to you, or maybe I'm very good at functioning as an atheist. I'm not going to give you all 10, because some of them really hurt, but a lot of them, I'm just going to try to allow them to hurt you as well, because you can probably relate to me. It is easy, friends, to say in our hearts, there is no God. We'd never say it with our mouth. That, word, that sentence would never be on our lips. But you live like it. We function like it. And most of our hours and our days are going by, and it's like, oh, wow, it's church time. That's, that's Jesus' time. See you again next Sunday, Jesus. Friends, I notice my temptation to practical atheism in the realm of control. I want to be in control of things. I want my, my wife to do the things I need her to do. I want the kids to do the things they need to do. That, Of course, it's perfect obedience. And they always need to do everything, not only the way I want them to. I'm, I'm sorry, they, they, they need to do what I want them to do, but they also need to do it in the way I want them to do. Stupid. It's silly, not only because it's sin and not only because it's an idol, control, but because it's nonsensical to begin with. There's only one in control. Even on a day when I really crushed it in the control realm, I did very little to keep the earth spinning. God is the only one in control. I usually need to get my butt off his throne and let him be God because I'm not. Desire and an idol for control, friends, is just atheism. Skip that one. That one hurts. Our schedules... If we were to get really into each other's task list, our schedules, look at our month or our week to week, are you scheduled out in any way that would reflect, I like Jesus, I love him, I love his people? Or are we functioning at such a pace that looks like, huh, I couldn't tell at all. Where's my room for rest and Sabbath? Where's my time on my Monday for being with Jesus? I schedule my meetings with Jesus, friends, because if I don't, Meetings with y'all are going to take them. I need to have those things. I, I got a meeting with the king, so I got to go. Our schedules. I notice it in my fears and anxieties. This is one my wife brought up. That's the whole, whole, all of point two, which I'm just, so I'll just pause on that. Friends, I notice it in my negative thinking. 
consume negative news, negative information. It makes me negative. Next thing I know, my emotions, my heart, my thoughts are negative, and I'm negative on anybody else. Friends, negativity is an oxymoron for the Christian. We have a Christian gospel of hope, and we're headed to a place of hope. Negativity needs to be banished. And I'm saying that as one who can be prone to negativity. It is stupid, and it's atheism. Negative thinking. At the front of your worship booklet, I put a pre-service quote on there. I encourage you to read the middle one on negativity. Last one. I got more, but I'm just going to give you one more. Entertainment. I notice practical atheism in the realm of entertainment, especially when we've got shows that are having raving reviews, amazing cast. Oh, the writing is so great. I have to watch it. But it's content and it's stuff is wicked and it breaks the heart of my Savior and yet I don't give a rip. It's evil. It's atheism. It's practically functioning like God's not there. He doesn't care what I watch. I shouldn't consult him on whether or not I should watch this or that or put this or that into my soul. It's the fool saying in his heart, no God. I'm going to watch what I want to watch. I'm going to read what I want to read. I'm going to digest the podcast I want to digest. I'm going to listen to the music I'm going to listen to. And it breaks the heart of Christ. Because the content is contrary to his heart. I'm not going to give you a list of a rubric to run everything through, but I think you you, you feel what I'm talking about. There are things, brothers and sisters, as born-again Christians, we can't watch. God says so. That has implications, parents, for what you are allowing your children to watch, and I have failed many a time at this, usually just because I want to introduce them to the classics that I like. Just so you know, the two towers is not a good idea for a three-year-old. Still, Still working through that one, but... Seriously, the wisdom of of Philippians 4, let me just read this to you. Finally, brothers and sisters, this is what you should dwell on. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think on these. But when it comes to our entertainment choices, usually made completely devoid of of any biblical worldview or consulting the Lord, we end up taking uh, taking in whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is not just, whatever is impure, whatever is not lovely, and what is not commendable. It's practical atheism. Now, maybe you can't relate to any of those things. I'm sorry I just wasted five minutes of your time, but those are some of the examples that those closest to me pointed out, ways in which I can function as if God's not there. You could add to that your mouth, your opinions on political and cultural things in our cultural moment. You can add in your marriage, your parenting, your time, your thought life, any sin could be included here. So friends, that is the fool. Saying in his heart, no God, I want to live the way I want to live without consulting the Lord, and I'm definitely not going to have to answer for the way I live. That person, the results of that life, so now we're going to go outside of our own hearts. We will look outside because that person, look at verses 1 through 4, is corrupt, sinful, they do nothing good, they fall away, or to use the words of Psalm 14, they've turned aside from the Lord, together they're corrupt, none of them do good, not even one, evil and injustice in chapter, or verse verse 4. That is a grim picture, but it's a realistic one. 
So I don't really know what to do with this other than maybe kind of hold these things in tension. Paul picks this up, applies it in Romans to all people without the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, causing us to come to life spiritually, seeing the beauty of Jesus and giving us faith to say, I'm with Jesus. Apart from that work of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the unbeliever, the non-Christian, whatever you want to call the outside world, has no hope, cannot please God, cannot change, and does only evil continually. Without saving faith in Christ, whatever they do, sin. That is with understanding that they're still made in the image of God. They still have value. They still have worth. There's a lot of ways in which we can find commonalities and common grace things with those who are outside the faith. But if you're like me, you, you might need a little healthy dose of biblical depravity. Because there's not a positive picture for systems, structures, unbelieving world, friends. None of them do good. Not even one. I'm trying to think of Romans 8 off the top of my head. It's been a minute since I memorized it. The, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those without the Spirit cannot please God. There it is. And those ones are saying, no God... And they often, therefore, reject God's people. Verse 4. We've got to move, though. I told you we'd spend most of our time there. That is most of our time. The second thing I want us to see, though, briefly, and then we'll go to Jesus together. Point two is the end for those who reject God, by connection, reject God's people, is terror. Verse 5 says, there they are in terror, where there is no terror. So we're talking about fear, anxiety, terror. Also just to note so you're aware, the next sentence for God scatters the bones in that, that sentence, that is what's unique to verse 50, uh, Psalm 53. Excuse me. Psalm 14 has a sentence on how these atheists, those who saying there is no God, attack and hurt the poor. So many believe that Psalm 53 is a recapitulation, restatement of Psalm 14, but that this verse is kind of altered a little bit because the people are being, there's a, there's, a, there's a siege going on. There's probably wicked bad guys and gals right outside the walls of Jerusalem. Such is why this psalm is different than Psalm 14. But anyways, going back to that first phrase, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. Friends, what this is saying is that those who are saying in their heart, no God, Yes, it's the unbelieving world, but oftentimes it's our own hearts. No God. Those ones are in great fear. Fear and anxiety. Where there is no cause for fear and anxiety. You know where I'm going with this. The implication here, I think, is that this type of no God theology, atheism, whether it's intellectual and philosophical like in our day, whether it's moral, I just want to do what I want to do, or the more sneaky one, the practical atheism, that leads us to being fearful and anxious. And fearful and anxious where there is no reason to be fearful and anxious. I feel this in my own heart. There is good fear, right? There, there are certain things we should be afraid of that keep us from doing stupid things. Uh-uh. That's good fear. 
There is a godly fear in Scripture, a good fear that I, I am just blown away. I'm in awe. I, there's a wonder of his beauty, his severity, his glory, his majesty. There's a godly fear that we should have. But far more often the Bible speaks against sinful fear and anxiety. And at least the way I experience it in my heart, often, not every time, of course, but in my heart, maybe you can relate, often my fears and anxieties are welling up from a heart saying, there is no God. No God for me. Or he doesn't see. God's not near. Where is he? And here I am fearful and anxious of all of these things that I have no reason to be fearful and anxious about. I have a king who's for me. And when you just remind yourself of the gospel, Jesus has already taken care of the thing that should make you afraid. Jesus has already cured the thing for which you should be real, real anxious about. Your sin and its punishment, which is eternal judgment and separation from God. Talk about anxious. But Jesus says, I took it upon myself. It's mine. I died for it. There's no condemnation for you, friends. And in his earthly ministry, Jesus would go on to say that our God is sovereign over all things, and if he cares for the animals of creation, this is my translation, if he cares for the animals of his creation and feeds the vegetation of earth, how much more will he care for us? That's his command to do, do not be anxious. Fear not. And what do I do in my heart? Well, I just end up not trusting him very much. Saying there is no God, anxiety and fear well up in my heart, and I'm anxious and I've lost a day being fearful about things I have no reason to be fearful about. My wife and I are reading a book in the evenings called The Happy Christian. We read a chapter at night out loud to one another. Uh, it's by David Murray. David Murray is a scholar, theologian, pastor, but he spends much of his days in professional counseling settings. He wrote the book called Happy Christian. Uh, he says a vast majority of anxiety cases that he deals with in professional counseling has a root of one of these two things. One, this person is believing something about God that's not true. Or, two, this person's not believing something about God that is true. In his experience... He can get to the, the root in these counseling sessions because one or both of these things are at play in almost every case of anxiety he deals with. And again, I don't know about you. I could be just speaking for myself. But when I recognize fearfulness in my own heart, when I experience anxiety welling up in my heart, it has been one of these two things. My heart is believing something about God that is false. Or I'm failing to believe something about God that's true. So I think our lives, our souls, our situations would likely be greatly served, friends, by asking these two questions often. What am I believing about God that's not true? And what am I failing to believe about God that is true? I've at least experientially seen fear and anxiety drip away 
as I'm asking myself those two things. By necessity, I think that might mean for us is knowing the scriptures. Knowing what God has said. If we are to know ways in which we've bought into a lie about God, or we're failing to believe things that are true about God, by necessity we need to know God. What has he said about himself? Who is he? What is his character? How has he revealed himself to us? And then we we keep reading it, and we keep meditating on it. We keep driving these truths into our hearts because, friends, we have the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God for us. God has spoken. We're not left in the dark. I might suggest some practical ways, because if you're like me, like I mentioned in our hypothetical situation, I can have my quiet time in the morning. I'm on my gray couch, far right seat, coffee to the right. I've got my spot. I can be done with my devotional reading and still go about my day functionally as if God's not there. And so I know in my own heart, I need reminders. I need practical rhythms, what we might call habits or liturgies throughout the day that keep tapping me in to the truth that I read that morning or the true story of the whole world that I know. For me, an easy way is to be memorizing scripture. I'm working on Psalm 107 right now. It's a doozy of a a psalm, 40-some verses. I'm through 12. One verse a day is on a note card in my pocket, and I whip it out throughout the day. Verse 12. Got it. Verse 12. Eventually, I feel it in my pocket, but I don't pull it out. It's there. Oh, okay. Verse 12. I do it from memory. By the end of the day, I've got verse 12. And by the end of the day, I have meditated on God's word throughout the day. I've continually reminded myself, I'm not of this world. I'm from a different place. I'm a citizen of a different place. I've reminded myself of the gospel. It could be setting reminders for yourself. Another one at 9.37 every day, you will have me praying wherever I am, if possible, praying Matthew 9.37. Of course, I'm going to forget it right now. Uh, The harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. I pray for our missionaries. I pray for our uh, campus partners. I pray for the unreached people group of the day. Every day from 937 and 938 because it's two verses. Let's put that in my reminder. My calendar reminds me every day. Boom, got it. There's technology out there, the verses app. There's other ways to do it, but friends, we need these constant reminders. It's no wonder that the scriptures are often saying, remember. Remember, remember that I, God, rescued you from Egypt. Remember, I, God, rescued you with a mighty outstretched arm. Remember, I, God, do not grow weary like you do. Remember the blood. Remember, 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 because we forget, forget, forget. My son Luke gave me a very vivid uh, illustration, if you will, of what I'm kind of getting at here. Whatever ways in which you remind yourself throughout the day of the one true story of the whole world and tap into the true story of the gospel, however you do that, my son Luke, he turned four last uh, month. He loves all things trucks. He's a tank. He's a large child. Um, he also, if you get to know Luke, he's obsessed with hitches. Many of you who know Luke um, know this to be true already because you can't get very far in the conversation without him showing you a Hot Wheels truck and turning it around and saying, hitch. He's got a lisp. I can't really do the lisp, but hitch. It's cute. He loves hitches. I don't know why. I don't know where this came from. It's kind of dangerous in parking lots. He sprints over to trucks to, like, touch the hitch. Even if the hitch isn't attached, it's just like the hitch mount there. He just wants to touch it. So we had to do some disciplining, like you can't run through the parking lot to touch the hitch. Um, 
I was, I was on pickup duty this past week. I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. We live about 10 minutes away from the older two kids' school. I'm on my way. I take Luke, and I kid you not, this kid says hitch a hundred times in eight minutes. Hitch, 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 hitch. Oh, that car's even got a hitch. Hitch. Daddy, hitch, hitch. What did my Luke not forget about on the eight-minute drive? Hitches. Make no mistake, it was incredibly boring uh, and annoying. And when he started this habit at the age of two, his H's sounded like B's. It was very odd at first, <laughs> but um, loves hitches. We are like my Luke, whether we know it or not, and our obsession ought not be hitches, I hope. It should be Jesus Christ crucified and risen and ascended for you. But we still need reminders. We need that constant reorienting our mind back to the gospel, back to Christ. So friends, I want to take us to our conclusion and to the table with verse 6. This is my third point. God has provided salvation. Maybe throughout this morning, you've been uniquely aware of your atheism, the ways in which you function as if God's not there, he's not near, I won't see him. He doesn't care. Maybe you've been uniquely made aware of your fears and anxieties. And because of all those things, maybe you're finding yourself right now praying something like this. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Put it another way, how long, oh Lord, when will I be alleviated of this? Will salvation come? And friends, the beauty is that that answer is a resounding yes. Psalm 53 could only anticipate the salvation that would come out of Israel and for Israel. The salvation that God would send for his people, for his city, Zion. We, on this side of the cross, know that salvation has come from Israel and for Israel. It came in the person of Jesus Christ. Help, salvation has been offered and it's a person who doesn't want you to do life as if there's no God. It's the person, Jesus, who wants to do life with you. To use Jesus' words, that that he, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. Friends, if I could twist it just a hair, the Son of Man came to seek and to save practical atheists like you, like me. The gospel is telling us that God himself took on flesh and became human because you keep saying, no God. I keep saying and living as if God is not near. And so God stepped into time and history and took on flesh. It is Jesus. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law for us in our place because we can't go very long without breaking it. In our thoughts or our deeds or our words or our lack of belief. That salvation that came out of Zion is Jesus. He was buried in a tomb because your unbelief and your anxiety and your fear and your rebellion to God require the death of somebody else. But that's not the end of the story. Salvation that came out of Zion in the form and in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose triumphantly from the dead for our justification. So we are counted as righteous, not as the practical atheists that we are. 
new creation has begun in our brother Jesus. And we will be with him where he is. That's still not the end. That Jesus ascended to his eternal and all-powerful throne where he sits right now interceding for you, praying for you, working for you, doing a million things in your life at any moment and you're aware of like three of them. That's our Jesus. We have every reason for hope, every reason for faith and trust in this salvation that's come out of Zion for us, for Israel. We have very little reason for despair because our King Jesus is on the throne in all of his beauty, moving mountains for us. He already took care of the biggest problem in his first coming. He's going to come back to fetch us. He's coming back for you. He's coming back for me. So I'll conclude with the lyrics of a hymn that we are going to respond by singing in a few moments. When Satan tempts me to despair or tempts me to functional atheism and he tells me of the guilt within, usually rearing its head in anxiety and fear at that point, when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin, and all my practical atheism, and all of my rebellion. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God who is three in one and far more beautiful and glorious than we can imagine, I pray that you would be with us now as we go to the table and meet with you. As you preach to our senses of taste and smell and touch and feel and eyes that you are present. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The wise one says in his or her heart, there is a God. And so help us, Lord Jesus, now, as we come to your table, know afresh that you are there. You are God and you are near. In your name I pray. Amen.